0: If you don't know me, if I haven't met you, my name is Nick, and I am the college pastor here. Actually, there, I like it like that. Is that okay with you? Okay, Uh, I'm the college pastor here, and for the summer, uh, Brian has been going through Hebrews 11, and wanting the pastoral staff to take you know different weekends, different sections of the text, and so. Um, I got this weekend actually by default because they're all gone. All all of them are gone. I I was thinking about this first service. I was like, I don't think uh, this has ever happened, at least not since I've been here, where all the pastoral staff, including our office manager, gone. And it's me. So it's like, okay, well, I hope that uh, the stage doesn't catch fire and lights don't start falling and stuff like that. If things go wrong, you know why. It's because it's... uh, It's just me. (laughs) But anyways, I'm happy to do this. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy for the opportunity. I I want to, uh, by means of introduction, and what I'm going to be looking at this morning, drawing us into that, I want to uh, bring something to our attention. And that is that I imagine most of us in this room are here this morning, Was it now, 11.30, in the morning on a Sunday because we desire to please God. Because we desire to please him. Um, I don't think most of us are here because we feel like we have to, or what? I realize there are certain cases where maybe uh, you're just checking things out, or maybe you're not sure about God, or maybe your wife is twisting your arm, or your mom is twisting your arm, like, all right, I'll be here. Um, in which case, I, I would say um, what the author of Hebrews says earlier in his text. His people says, if you hear his voice today, if you hear his voice, don't harden his heart, but believe. So if you're here and you're checking it out, that's where you're at. We're happy you're here. I personally welcome you and, and, and give thanks that you're present. And I believe that God speaks to us through his word and that you just might hear the voice of God today. Not my voice. But his voice. But for the majority of us, I am aware that it's not necessarily easy to get all your kids in a car or to ride your. How many rode your bike today? Anybody? Nobody? How many, okay. How many called their friend and tried to get a ride? Anybody? Okay. I at least got. Why? Because you want to please God, right? You want to be here. You make efforts to be here because you love God and you want to please him. That's why we're here. There are all sorts of opinions out there about how we go about pleasing God. Thinking about this, the reality is there's all sorts of different religious structures and systems built around this very concept. How is it that we please God? And we even within Christendom have our own ideas. Um, we got to read our Bible once a day or we got to make sure that we're giving of our money or make sure that we love our neighbor or all these other things that we have in our mind that we need to do to please God. And, and what I really care about more than anything is what does God have to say about the matter? What's his opinion? What is it that if God could stoop down from heaven and speak to us. Hey, listen. All of you who are here on a Sunday and desire to please me, this is what pleases me. This is it. What is it? What, what? That's what we're going to get to tonight. Well, I say tonight because I'm used to teaching at the rain. (laughs) That's funny. This morning, that's where we're going to be this morning. Think of this as well. We're those strange people that actually take pleasure in God, taking pleasure in us. That's bizarre. That's weird. Now, a lot of people out there, if you look at your idols or you look at what you used to run to or what you're tempted to run to, the reality is is it's something similar. You try to find your pleasure in your mom or your dad or your boss or your friends or your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife or children taking pleasure in you. We like to experience this, oh, I like you. I, I, and kind of, I praise you. We like that and we look for that all over. But the Christian is the one that says, wait a minute, I've found the source. I know the one who created me. And whose pleasure it found in me means more to me and is more pleasurable to me than anything else. That's why when you get to Zephaniah, that little minor prophet, and you read that, people just, people quote this verse all the time. They don't know anything else that Zephaniah says, and I'm one of them. (laughs) The the verse is, is, I will, I will, uh, I think it's something along the lines of, I will rejoice over you with Singing. Everyone's always quoting that. Why? Because Christians love this fact that somehow God is pleased with them and they find pleasure in his pleasure. That's what we want, right? That's why we're here this morning. We want to please God. We desire to. We take pleasure in him, taking pleasure in us. How do we please him? That's what our text deals with, I've been given, Enoch. (laughs) Uh, Hebrews 11, 5 through 6. When I saw Enoch on the schedule, I was like, interesting. (laughs) I think there's like one or two verses that deal with Enoch, and it's not very clear. And I was like, huh, okay, well, let's see. And it's actually proven to be awesome. Um, So here we go. 5 and 6 of Hebrews 11, and you'll remember that in Hebrews 11, what you basically got is the author is taking us through individuals um, throughout biblical history that have, have uh, ex- expressed, displayed faith in God and done amazing things through his power. And you'll remember also what Brian's trying to emphasize in this series, and that is that this has nothing to do with the individual being great. Great. In and of themselves or in and of himself. It has to do with simple, ordinary, common and significant people trusting an amazingly powerful good God. And Enoch's just another one in the list. So, Hebrews 11, 5-6. Let's read it, pray. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found... Because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's pray, guys. Jesus, that's our desire. That is our hope. It's that we would please you, God. That you would look upon us and be pleased. And even might say those words you said over Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, God. That's our desire. Let every other desire just... God, take a back seat. Disappear like it ought to. And let us today only seek to please the one whom is worthy. You. God, I pray that you would do a great work in this room. I pray more than anything that Jesus, our great high priest, would be exalted. And the work he did on our behalf, would be exalted. God, I am not worthy or sufficient to talk about these things, to lead a group of people, for that matter, in these things. But here it is, just hopefully a living example of Hebrews 11. I'm nothing. You're everything. Come on. Let's do something in this room this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. It's for his glory. Okay, so, I want to make the observation here up front at first that this man, Enoch, born just a few generations down from Adam, pleased God. It says that he um, was commended as having pleased God. I go, okay, all of us here wanting to please, Enoch pleased. How did he do it? What's the deal? We'll get to that. But first, I I want to sit here on Enoch for a moment and his story. What little we know of it. Because what we have is that Enoch was commended as having pleased God, and therefore God took him up meaning he did not die like every other man. I think him and Elisha are the only ones in the scriptures recorded as being taken up in that way. That God, it would seem, was so pleased by his faith that he took him to be with him where he was before time for death even came. There's something that Spurgeon had to say when I was just studying through this that I thought was Really powerful, and I wanted to bring it to your attention here in the beginning, because if you're anything like me, especially when I saw this, I was like, oh, but that's, that seems so crazy. Like, that's hard to believe that Enoch was taken up, and, and he just bodily, there he went, and Enoch's gone? Are you serious? This is, kind of, this is kind of difficult to wrap my mind around. Start scratching our head. Is that possible? Come on, oh, give me a break. Spurgeon looks at this text, and this is what he says. I do not wonder that Enoch did not die. It was a less thing to be translated to heaven, translated as in caught up and transferred from here to there. It was a less thing to be translated to heaven than it was to please God. Did you catch it? You saying, I look at this story and I don't wonder, oh my gosh, how was Enoch raised up? I know God created the heavens and the earth. He made the laws of gravity and life and death and everything else. And if God wants him in heaven, he will be in heaven. That's not hard. What's hard for me is the fact that it is recorded. In the holy scriptures, that a sinful fallen man, after sin, entered the world through Adam. Pleased a holy, righteous, glorious, all-powerful, almighty God. That's crazy. That's what Spurgeon says. I wish I was more like that. I'm going to hit this again. I got to move this. I almost knocked it over last year. Okay. That's the hard thing. That's the thing to wonder at. How does a small, insignificant, little, nothing creature please, infinite, eternally worthy, glorious God? It would help us here if we went to the account, the original account that Uh, it would seem the author of Hebrews is referencing, and that's in Genesis 5. There's another one real quick reference that that Enoch has in Jude, and talks about him being a prophet, which is interesting, uh, but not as applicable to uh, where I think the author of Hebrews is leading us. Genesis 5, we're going to start in verse 18, and we're going to make our way down to verse 24. What you need to make note of is that we're smack dab in the middle of a genealogy, your favorite. Um, And so we're going to pick it up in verse 18. He's been in this genealogy for about, I think, 15 verses or really since the beginning of chapter 5, talking about Adam and then all the people that have come forth, and then here comes Enoch, and I want to point out a couple of things as we go. But here you go, verse 18, when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. I just want to stop there. I know it's the middle of a sentence, but that's where I want to focus for a moment. Because what you have is up to this point, all these genealogies, all these different guys have been spoken about in the same way, the very same form, the very same pattern. This guy lived, had a son here, lived after he gave birth to this son this long and then died. This guy lived, had a son here, gave birth and then died. And then all of a sudden we get to Enoch and there's a break in the form, a break in the pattern. And he says, after when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. And I think you're supposed to go, no one else you didn't say that about the other guy. This is significant. This is significant. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates this this walked with God as pleased God, which is where I think the author of Hebrews is probably drawing his information. It's recorded that he pleased God, walked with God, pleased God. There was this intimate relationship with God. Enoch had it. Verse 23, Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And we go, wait a minute. That's weird because everyone else is living about 900. How come the guy that pleases God lives less I would think he gets more life he does more of the real life Enoch walked with God verse 24 and he was not for God took him in other words 365 years he's still alive kicking going strong up he goes God took him there's the story it's Enoch please God want to draw couple things from this, then we'll move into what we're really after this evening. But first, I want to ask this evening, you guys are going to have to forgive me, pretend it's nighttime, (laughs) pretend it's college ministry time. (laughs) First thing, have we ever enjoyed such company with God as this? It's talking about Enoch walking with God, Enoch pleasing God, this intimate relationship where it's almost as if they're going, okay, huh, I could either go another 600 years here or I could see you face to face now. Let's go. And I wonder, I wonder, I look at my own soul, my own heart, and I wonder, have I ever had company with God like this? I mean, how many times is it kind of like, oh, if I could take another couple of years, I'd be cool with that. If I could have some more time to work on my life here and my friends here and my family here and my career here and all these other, I could kind of, that'd be cool. But Enoch is walking with God while he's here. And to him, it's just like, listen, if I have the choice of this place, or being there face to face, let's go. Let's go. What are we waiting for? And that's what we have to let search us here this morning. (laughs) Where are we at? Is it just like, hey, let's go? Or "Mm." like that parable, I'm inviting you to the, 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 the feast, the wedding feast and Who wants to come? Well, uh, I just got married. Can I be excused? Uh, I've got some some cattle or oxen I need to take care of. Can I be excused? Uh, 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 i got stuff going on here. I could use a couple extra years here to get it all done, if you don't mind. That I could use. But the wedding feast, I don't got time. And Enoch, like I hope and pray, we have. Enoch had this relationship with God that just says, listen, this is just a sermon, this is just a job, this is just, let's go, if we can go now, let's go, let's go, see him face to face, reminds me of the Apostle Paul, you remember that amazing verse in Philippians 1, verse 21, where Paul says, to me, to live is Christ and to die is what? Meaning, I'm going to be Enoch here as far as I'm alive. I'm walking with God. I'm pleasing God. To live is Christ. Intimacy with Christ. To die, to be caught up, to be taken into his presence is not, oh, bummer, I had more to do. But gain, That's Enoch. That's this heart that's in Enoch. That's the heart that's in Paul. That's the heart that I want to be in us as God's children. That he not be, like it talks about later on in Hebrews, ashamed to call himself our father. People of whom the world is not worthy because they desire a better country. A better place. A heavenly city. I don't want God to look down and go, man, my people are all looking around I want him to go, that's my boy. Come on. Second thing. i to try to do these fast so I can get to the where I really want to go, which last service I had to cut it short. Okay. Where are we in our generation? That's another thing we could draw just from Enoch's story. Just up front. What you have is Enoch, it's basically the great grandpa, it would seem from my analysis of the genealogy there. He's a great grandpa of Noah which we all know during Noah's lifetime the flood came, destroyed man why? Every intention of the thought of a man's heart was only evil continually with each subsequent generation it got worse and worse and worse and worse and God chooses as Moses is writing this genealogy Hey, Moses, make sure you make note that Enoch walked with me. I go, whoa. In the midst of this stuff, no one else was talked about like this. Increasing sin and wickedness on the earth. Enoch walked with God. And I thought, where are we in our generation? I mean, we look out there, and maybe in San Luis Obispo, to some degree, it's kind of like a nice little incubator for Christians. Oh, this is great. There's a lot of stuff going on in this town, a lot of amazing churches, a lot of amazing ministries. But by and large, the world is not conducive as an environment for the growth of a Christian. This generation is getting worse, and Jesus says, it's going to get worse until I come. Where do we stand in it? Couple altars to God, couple altars to the idols of our day. Or are those things powder? Because we worship him alone. I'm thinking in terms of like our workplace, school, our families and friends. Here's the reality. I was talking to a guy on Friday night after the college ministry. And he was saying, you know what? I'm involved in the political realm of things and doing all this stuff. Right now it's pretty busy. And he's like, I just can't shake the fact that it's taking up too much of my time. And I, in the words of, of Hebrews 11, I, I'm having a hard time walking with God and doing this at the same time. And he's going, I, I get this sense that I'm supposed to pull back and fast and pray and wait on God while my life is going crazy. Crazy. And it's probably the most inconvenient time for it. Doesn't make any sense at all. But I got to do it. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all of these things you need will be added to you. Is that how we are operating in this generation, or are we going with the current along with everyone else? Oh, yeah, okay, I got to work hard. I got to make this money. I got to get the. It's relying on me and me and me and I. Or are we like Enoch walking with God in the midst of this generation? Or you think of business practices and the way that that's going, and maybe you're tempted. I, I don't know. Or you think of, like I said, family. And I've talked to people that coming to Christ for them meant their family rejects them. You just stand up for Jesus, your family. Hey, listen, the generational denial of Christ stops with me. Glory to God for you. That's amazing. You walk, you go back to family reunion, they don't want to see you. You're annoying. You're a nuisance. You keep talking about Jesus. I said at school, you probably experienced this too. You got all these people that are pursuing what ultimately? Success and money and I don't know, with a more postmodern worldview being fed to you every day. And then on the weekends, let's go party, let's go drink, let's look at chicks, let's do whatever. Is there an altar built to our God in your life, in this generation? I hope so. I tell you what, if that's where you're at, look at Enoch and, 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 and take faith, take heart. Because even in the midst of such perilous times, he walked with God and God was so pleased with him. Okay. How did Enoch please God? Talk about we want to please God. Enoch pleased God. How did he do it? By faith. You see it in verse 5. You see it in verse 6. There in the beginning of verse 5. By faith, Enoch was caught up and did all these things and was commended as having pleased God by faith. And then from this example, the author of Hebrews draws out doctrines. It says this in verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. So there you go. We've got our answer. You probably knew it from the beginning. I'm just trying to build us up in it. The answer is faith. Enoch pleased God by his faith. So what is faith again? We got our answer in Hebrews 11:1, And that is that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Still not perfectly clear. We'll get there. But what we at least know at this point is faith takes our hopes. Those things that we hope for. And it declares to my heart, be assured of that. You can be certain that's going to be what faith says to my hope. Or faith says to those things I cannot see. Be convicted of that. That is real. Though you cannot see it, you can be certain. Faith takes my hopes, assures me. Faith takes those things I can't see and tells me, that's true, convicts me of their reality. Realize I'm not going to get a drink unless I just stop awkwardly, so I'm sorry. Okay. So, that's faith. Faith pleases God. What's faith? We got it. What is, now we start to get into our text, what is faith's object? That's where what we start to see unfolded. What is faith's object? Because the reality is you're hoping for something. You are uh, convinced of some reality you cannot see, some reality, some thing you cannot see. What is this thing? What is this reality? What, is this, what, what are we hoping in? What is the object of our faith? We can hope in a lot of stuff. We can have faith in a lot of things that probably doesn't please God. I know doesn't please God at all. You remember the whole issue with uh, the Jewish people? Back in Paul's day, in Romans 10, he says, listen, I tell you what, they have zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. They are not trusting in the right things. They're trusting in themselves. We can have faith, uh, objects of faith that are way off, like my righteousness, myself, my strength, my money, my whatever. I hope in that. I trust in that. And it will get me to where I want to go. I don't see it yet, but my money will take me there. In that kind of faith that pleases God, the object is God. It's God. We have faith in God, and we need to move even deeper still. For there are certain things about God that uh, the author of Hebrews gives us that we are to have faith in if, in fact, we are to have a faith that pleases Him Two things that we see. You see this in the latter part of verse 6. Whoever would draw near to God must believe what? Number one, that he exists. Number two, that he rewards those who seek him. Now, just take those one by one for a moment, give you real brief, and then get into it deeper. First, that he exists, he says. I gotta believe that God exists, that he, God, the object of my faith, exists. If it's gonna be a faith that pleases him. What does that mean? What does that mean? I'll tell you what I think it means. I might even be simplifying it a little bit too much, but for the sake of the time we got, that's how it goes. Here's my thoughts. I think he means that we need to believe that such a being as God, and all that he says he is really is. That there is actually a being as powerful and almighty and crazy, awesome as God. That he really is. I have in mind one word that sums it up. I think we need to believe in his greatness. He exists, that there is such a being as God. We'll get into that in a moment. The second thing I, that, that the author of Hebrews gives us, that we need to have faith in, is that he rewards those who seek him. Meaning What? Not only is he big and powerful and over overall, and the universe cannot contain him. And if he were to come into this room, we'd all drop as dead men, as even the beloved apostle John did. Is that great? But he also rewards those who seek him. In other words, he also is the Lord, the Lord. Rich in love and slow to anger and abounding in whatever. I can't remember all that he says in Exodus. Do you guys know that? He declares this of himself. Moses, show me your glory. Okay, I will hide in a rock and let me tell you, this is my glory. I'm loving. I'm slow to anger. You can hope in me. I forgive iniquity. I'm merciful. I reward those who seek me. I am in a word good got greatness, you got goodness. The object of our faith. God is greatness, goodness. In other words the fullness of his glory. All his attributes can be lumped under those two main categories. Omniscient, omnipotent, uh, independent, trinitarian, uh, self-sufficient. All these things on the present. He's great. He's merciful, loving, gracious, forgiving. Slow to anger. Help. He's good. Now, what I want to do to fill out each of these two um, things which we are to believe about God. Actually, I just want to read. I just want to read from Isaiah 40. Um, I'm going to say very little about it. I really want here in the beginning for God just to have a word with us about what it means to be God, that he is that he exists, that such a being as God actually exists. What does it mean to be God? I want him to talk about it with you. Isaiah 40, we're going to read from verse 12 through 26. He's talking here, just saying, listen, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I'm God. This is what it means. Who has measured, if you want, close your eyes, just listen and ask yourself, whoa, do I believe in a God this great? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? No one. Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No one. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Do you understand what he's saying there? Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon, these trees and things, and all of its beasts in there would not suffice an offering worthy enough for this king. And he's still receiving these little, tiny little sacrifices from people. That's what he's saying. I am beyond huge you give me forests and all the beasts in it and it's not an offering fit for me where was i ah 17 thank you all the nations are as nothing before him they are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness to whom then will you liken god or what likeness compare with him an idol And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He's not saying that to be like you guys are losers. He's just saying it fact. Just how it is. We are. See, grasshopper? There he is. That's you, to God. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. These are kings of the earth, the people that the men of the earth tremble at. Whoa, these guys are the leaders, the kings. And God goes, okay, you're done. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. He's talking about the stars here. And because, of the, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. I went out last night and I was like, okay, I just finished this. I want to look. <laughs> I got to see the stars. And you know what? I didn't see any because the moon was so bright. <laughs> But the moon captured my attention and humbled me before God. You gotta, you gotta work at this, though. It's not something that happens naturally, unfortunately. Our human flesh is so silly. We don't, we're not in awe. We're not going, Whoa, God is huge. We're like, my life, it's all about me and revolving around me. Meanwhile, the galaxies are just extending above us. And the moon comes out, we go, Oh, yeah, it's just the moon. What? the stars, he says, I know them by name. When's the last time you brought anything out in the heavens? You won't. You haven't. I am beyond compare. This is what it means to be God. I'm great. We go, whoa, this is scary. Ah." It's not at all. Because he's also good. Don't let your idea of his goodness make him such a little teddy bear that he's no longer great. God doesn't. Look at where he goes. He jumps straight from this into a proclamation of his goodness and his desire to love his people. Verse 27. We'll read down to verse 31. This is his goodness now. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by God. Have you ever felt like that? You ever go, whoa, God is too big, God is too important, God's doing all sorts of things. I'm way down here, he doesn't even notice me. He probably doesn't even care about me. He just got done saying, for goodness sake, that the nations are a drop in the bucket, their emptiness and nothing, and I'm a grasshopper. Last time I looked, I didn't care what a grasshopper thought. Therefore, I feel like God probably doesn't care about me. That's what God's people are saying at this point. Why are you saying that? He says, why are you saying my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Here He goes, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord, if you're in that place, hear God say this to you. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And you say, I know that. You already told me about your greatness. Thanks. He goes, wait, you don't understand. When I talk about my greatness, I'm talking about the power that now is about to be applied to you for your good. 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. And you know this verse. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I am great. You better believe it and don't you forget it because that's what fills out and gives meaning to the fact that I am good. We see the two concepts married together in one verse when we read Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, he says, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. My greatness, my goodness, come together. Don't fear. I'm here. I'm for you. The author of Hebrews is saying, we've got to believe this. Those who wait for the Lord will be lifted up as on wings like eagles. Those who trust in themselves and try to get things done on their own, they will grow weary. Youths will, you you youth, you tired. You're supposed to have energy. You've got to trust in God. It's not to say all tiredness is a result of lack of faith. Now, here's what I want you to consider. We must have faith in these two things, the greatness and goodness of God, at the same time if we are to have a faith that is worth anything at all. I think that's what um, this scripture is telling us. There's plenty of other scriptures that tell us this, but it's also what experience would tell us this. And I I I can start to show you. I want to start to flesh this out for you. If I believe in God's goodness, I'm sorry, if I believe in God's greatness, but I don't believe in God's goodness, how does that work out? I might believe that he can do all of these things, I just don't think he wants to do it on my behalf. Therefore, it's as good as if I didn't trust in him, believe in him. I still got to figure it out on my own. I still got to freak out about it and look to something else to trust. Or, if I believe that God is good, but I don't believe that he is great, running into the same issue. Oh, I believe that God loves me and would do everything for my good if he could. But his hands are tied. Satan got the upper hand, or this was an unforeseen circumstance that took him by surprise, and oh no, he's not great. If you trace back every st- evidence of sin and failure, and all to its root, you will find that this faith in God's goodness and greatness has aborted somewhere. And if you trace back every victory you've had over sin or just act of love or service that just felt like, whoa, I feel like God did that through me, you can trace it back to faith in His goodness and greatness as it pertain to you. This is what we need to know in every moment if we are to walk by faith and thus please God. That he is not just great, but good. You could think about uh, I had a friend who, his, her mom came down with, with cancer. And you look at that and you go, whoa. If ever there was a time where these two qualities of our great God were just imploding, just in collision with one another in your heart and in your mind, it's them. I thought you were good. How could you let this happen? Or, why didn't you do something about this? I know you would help, but can you? Goodness and greatness, just right there in the balance. Do I believe it or not? Will I walk by faith or not? If you say not to either one of those things, the reality is out comes anxiety and fear and resentment and bitterness. But if you say yes, in comes joy and peace and a ministry out of a, what was a bad thing, a hard thing. People are looking going, whoa, what is the reason for the hope that is within you? Because we say, okay, wait a minute. I believe in a great and a good God. Therefore, cancer comes upon me or someone I love. I believe that either A, God is going to heal and thus display his glory. Like that one person that comes up to Jesus like, who sinned more? Him or him or him? He's like, listen, this guy is sick not because of his sin, but because I desire to show my glory to you right now. Be healed. That could happen. Or if he chooses to let it remain in my body and slowly kill me, I believe that he will use my testimony for good and people. Because like Enoch, listen, what? I could have 600 more years here if I wanted, figuratively speaking. But I'm going to go be with God today. That's a joyful occasion. That's a game. You can bring it on down, how your bank account's dwindling, or your children are yelling at you, or your, you've got a deadline at work, and da, da 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 it's always in the balance. Do I believe that God is both great and good? There it is. Times it. Okay, we're doing good. I want to give you one last verse just to seal the deal that this kind of faith in God, His greatness and goodness, is what has always pleased Him. Okay? One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Psalm one forty-seven, ten through 11. Because it it, it 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 comforts my soul. Every time I'm prone to go, ooh, I think God is looking to me to show him that I'm great in order to gain acceptance or please him. To, from, to, to me to show him that I'm good enough to have his acceptance. And i got to try to figure out how to do this on my own so that I can please him. And he says, you've completely aborted the process of pleasing me. It has to do, first and foremost, with faith in me. And of course, as we see in the letter of Hebrews, or in Hebrews 11 especially, that works its way out in walking and evidence and real fruit and other stuff, totally. But the root is faith. And you see it here. What is it that pleases God? he will tell us. Psalm 147, 10 through 11. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. In other words, what we can bring him is not what he's looking for. Oh, Nick's great. Oh, Nick's good? Cool. You can come into my presence because I'm also great and good. No. It's like, listen, you're a grasshopper. We've already gotten that out of the way. What pleases me is the Lord takes pleasure, verse 11, in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Did you catch it? His greatness, wow, I fear him. He is way beyond me. He exists. This being exists. He calls the stars up, creates and uncreates and does whatever he wants. But I also hope in his steadfast love. I also have faith in his goodness. That loves me. At the same time, I'm freaked out in his presence because the division is just insane, but at the same time I'm so stoked because I'm in his lap and he's wiping away tears from my eye saying, this right hand is what will uphold you. What in the world? And he says, that's what I take pleasure in. You want to please me? Trust me for crazy love and crazy power. And I will be well pleased. Now, we bring it to close here as we get to really the most important part. Because I think we need to go deeper. Um, I think we need to go deeper. I, 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 I scanned, skimmed through the book of, of Hebrews yesterday just trying to go, okay, What is this all about? Let's get big picture here before I come in and focus on two verses. And uh, you see it everywhere that that the author of Hebrews is trying to take us even further into some. He's talking about some superior revelation that we have that even Enoch did not have. Okay. He says, we've been given. This is actually Peter, but I think it's Peter. At least you can take it from him and put it in this place as well there's this idea that we have something now into which angels long to look. There is a greater revelation that the children of God now have. Superior revelation. What Enoch saw. Enoch was seeing in forms and shadows. Kind of words that the author of Hebrews uses. Greatness, goodness. And he, he trusted in those things. But that those shadows and those forms incarnate, if you will, in the person of Jesus Christ. And that everywhere is what the author of Hebrews is about us seeing and trusting in Jesus. I felt like, gosh, I cannot end this. Just going, even because it's not specifically in my text. He exists, or my text, he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. It is there. The all, the whole book of Hebrews is all about this faith in Christ. That we have this superior revelation to what Enoch saw. He didn't necessarily know Jesus or all these other things. But what he did know, he believed, and God reckoned to him, it to him as righteousness, and to us it has been granted to see in Jesus the very glory of God. So we can go deeper here. We don't have to stop with faith, greatness, goodness, God. Let's go deeper. This in fact is the point of Hebrews eleven, the last couple of verses there verses thirty nine through forty where he says this, all of these, all of these guys who've shown great faith throughout biblical history, though commended through their faith, like Enoch, did not receive what was promised. At least, not the fullness of it. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So all these guys did what they could with what they saw, but now we see in fullness what's going on. And angels are just, over the edge of heaven. What is going on in this room right now? I'll show you this in the letter of, to the Hebrews. That Jesus is the focus of all of this. And I want it to be the focus of this message. The author of Hebrews calls him, in 2.10, chapter 2, verse 10, the founder of our salvation. And in chapter 2, verse 17, he calls him the merciful and faithful high priest. And in chapter 5, verse 9, he calls him the source of eternal salvation. And in chapter 6, verse 20, he calls him our forerunner. And in chapter 7, verse 22, he calls Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And in chapter 9, verse 15, he calls him the mediator of a new covenant. And in chapter 12, verse 2, he calls Jesus the founder and perfecter of our Faith. this whole faith thing it's all about Jesus this whole salvation thing and pleasing God thing it comes to a point in the person of Christ we draw near to him we're not just believing in vague notions about a God we have the greatness and goodness of God incarnate in Jesus but we can take it even further. One step deeper into what we're putting our faith in. We've got this idea that we put our faith in God, and even more than that, His greatness and His goodness. And then you've got this idea now that, okay, His greatness and His goodness were incarnated in the person of Christ, trust Christ, but now there's one step further that I want to take us, that we are exhorted to trust in and look to with faith more than any other, and that is there is one moment in Jesus' life it's just a climactic display of the greatness and goodness of God it just explodes out of the scene and that is obviously the cross of Jesus Christ I want to read for you a verse a couple verses from Colossians 2 I want to exalt here the greatness and goodness of God as it's seen in the person of Christ upon his cross. This is where we'll close. But it's, it's holy ground. You, verse 13 of Colossians 2, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them over them in him. This is to be the object above any other objects of our faith. That work that Jesus did for you and me upon the cross, because you know something? The reality is it says it. We were dead in our trespasses and we owed a debt that we could never pay to God on our own, even an eternity under his wrath, would not pay the debt we owed because of our sin. That's why in Romans it talks about in the flesh no man can please God. You and I, in and of ourselves, could never please God. He is not looking to our greatness or our goodness. He, in fact, oftentimes is bummed out about it. Talks about the greatest things we've got as being filthy rags or rubbish in his sight. That's not what he's after. And so what we have to understand is we had, and those of you who have yet to come to Christ still have, a debt that we owed to God because of our sin. And it was going to keep us from his presence. There's no way we could be reconciled to a holy God, could come and stand in that great God's presence without this. Without all of my sin, all of your sin, all of that stuff, you feel like there's just luggage back behind you. Around your ankles, tied. To, I can't walk because I'm still ashamed, still condemned, still dealing with all of this stuff. All of that nailed to the cross, put upon the back of our Savior, the great high priest, as the author of Hebrews calls him, who didn't offer up a sacrifice, a goat or a lamb, but himself perfect, spotless, took the wrath of God for you absorbed your and my debt so that we could be free, so that we can come to God, so that we can come, you remember the verse in Hebrews, into his throne of grace, catch that, throne, the place of authority, majesty, greatness, And yet there's grace at that throne. His goodness, his love. Jesus Christ makes a way. Now, what I want to point out here. I wonder if you know what the cross of Christ, or what the crucifixion back in Romans day was all about. To my knowledge, they would take, These thieves and crucify them in a public place with the crime they were guilty of over their head so that they could make a public declaration. All of you out there, don't do this or we'll do this to you. And God, in the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, usurps Roman authority and declares his own message to the world, and all watching. Two things. I'm great. It says, where is it? That he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. On the cross, talking about Satan and the demons and things, Rulers and authorities, principalities of the air, all that stuff. On the cross, I could just see them dancing around like, look at this. We're winning, we're winning, we're winning. Wait a minute. The demons were dancing until they realized that they were being disarmed. Death, where is your sting? Sin, where is your victory? They don't have anything against us anymore. The accuser of the brethren falls silent in the courts of heaven because our God is great and he triumphed over them at the cross. So if you still hear, this is who you are, this is what I've been, this is what you can't come to him until you get that right and then you'll please him, get that out of your head. It's from the devil. It says that all that stuff... Disarmed, the stinger removed. It's nothing. It's like a bee just tried, nothing. Wasp doesn't hurt. Just flick it off. Second thing he declares to all those watching, I am good. What love is here? What goodness, what reward for those who seek him, if for those who didn't seek him but were his enemies. He gave a son. Romans 5 8, I think. What an amazing thing. And so the reality is, you have no reason in this room today to let the enemy talk you out anymore of coming into God's presence because Jesus bore all your sin, all your debt. And he says, Come on, come into the throne. Oh, yeah, it's a throne, but it's a throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. You remember what God said to his son. The day he was being baptized and up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he says it again. Behold, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. With whom I I am well pleased. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. All you who show up and seem like nobody biked here, but one person found a ride and people are packing their kids into cars and everyone's trying to get their schedules around so we can come and go, I want to please God, all of you who have this heart. I want you to know that when you come to the cross weep for joy It is crucifixion and resurrection because In your place, condemned, he stood. You are now free. And that same declaration of God's pleasure is made over all of those who are in his Son through faith. Just hear it. Behold, my beloved child, with whom I'm well pleased. You feel the demons in this room Screaming. Let's sing, yeah. Let's sing. I'll end with um, Hebrews thirteen twenty twenty one benediction. It's the way that the author of Hebrews ends his letter. I want to end our time here this morning with that. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Note this. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. You ever fear that you're going to lose your faith one day, the faith that pleases? Know that it's in his hands and he is working in In you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus at this very moment. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We're gonna respond to the Lord with uh singing, lift up your voices, and also with um our tithes and our offerings. Um be a joyful giver. And Brian always, and I love the fact that he always wants it to be pointed out that if you are a guest, we don't want your money. This is not a, we put on a show and then we expect a return. So keep your money. Give if your heart, if God leads your heart to give. And we're thankful for that. We trust in him. We also have communion there, there, and there around the back. Uh, and I would encourage you. And as you come, know that you come to the body and the blood of Christ. that was broken, shed for you so that you can please the Father through your faith, not in yourself, but in Him. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not in that place of, of, of receiving Jesus in that way, we would just ask you, come to Him, or thank you for coming, but at least um, the, the, part, the communion is for those that, that really receive Jesus. And so we would ask you just to um, refrain from that. Thank you guys. Let's pray. Father. Right now, I pray that this room here be transformed into your throne of grace, where we know the great high priest lives to make intercession for us. You're present, and even if the accuser of the brethren were there, we've seen examples of it through the scriptures. You shut his mouth, he has no stinger, he's been disarmed. I pray that as condemnation is released in this room and people flee to the cross with faith, that our hearts would experience that great joy and pleasure in you. We love you. It's in your name we pray.